want to call this message Take Heart. Take Heart. It captures, um, it captures two sides of the coin in some ways, Take Heart. Take Heart is a, a, a phrase full of hope. Take Heart. Like, it's full of hope. There's excitement. There's, there's, there's victory on the horizon. There's, there's a comforter. And yet Take Heart admits that, that it's hard. Simeon was saying, you know, I think today, is today winter solstice? Seems like it. It's getting, the sun's going to set at like 4.30 or something. It's like UK, British time. You know, take heart. It, it's, it's full of hope, but it emits the reality that we're in. And Jesus, um, who remembers when we did the foot washing? Who remembers we did the foot washing down the front here? Some of you still regretting that you didn't get your feet washed. Like, it's getting smelly now. I wish lucky had to wash my feet. But... um. The foot washing, that was the start of this discipleship discourse, the last night that Jesus spends with his disciples. And we're still in it, John 13 to John 17. Jesus is preparing his disciples for life after him. He's, he's teaching them, um, he's preaching or, or chatting how, how to live, what life's going to be like after he's gone. He's He's giving a roadmap for discipleship. And so as disciples of him, we, we listen closely. We recline into Jesus' chest and hear what he's got to say. And he's got words that are really helpful for our moment today. So what I want to do is, is talk about, I think, why this, this word, take heart, is timely um, in our cultural moment. I then want to look at, at the word itself, what he's saying in the text. And then I want to spend a bit of time... Um, just finishing up by going, how can we actually take heart? Because it sounds nice, doesn't it? But how do we actually take heart? How do we, how do we practice that? I'm just going to pray one more time. Heavenly Father, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you give us the mind of Christ? As Ben prayed, would you soften us so that we might be moulded into the people you want us to be? For your glory in this world. Amen. So I have a theory, and my theory is that, that Easter Saturday is Australia's um, biggest shopping day of the year. All right? Now, now, most people would say, you know, Boxing Day is the traditional one. You know, those lines at High Point that are on the news, or I think um, Black Friday is becoming a thing now. You know, Black Friday, the, the, the American day after Thanksgiving except because of the time difference, it's a Saturday here, and yet we have Black Friday in Australia. I think it stuffed our traffic up last year when we were trying to do um, board games night and it was the Victorian elections. But don't sleep on Easter Saturday, all right? Don't sleep on Easter Saturday. I, I see you if you're sleeping on Easter Saturday. Easter Saturday is nuts. I don't know if it's because people are... Um, you know, practicing retail therapy after Jesus' death, or just if you know the shops were closed on Good Friday, and so it's just a trampoline effect. Um, but when I, I I spent some of my younger years in Adelaide, right? And one thing you need to know about Adelaide is that the shops are never packed in Adelaide, right? Nothing's ever packed in Adelaide. You know, it's the city of churches and the city of chillness. It's pretty chill. But one Easter Saturday in Adelaide. I went to Bunnings. 
with my family, and I'm telling you, Alan's grinning, Bunnings, the sound of Bunnings, I'm telling you, man, South Australia's never seen anything like that. Bunnings on Easter Saturday, whoever was on the, the sausage sizzle that day, they're like set, you know, they haven't worked a day since that, that sausage sizzle. Um, another time on Easter Saturday, uh, just before um, Jess and I got married, we went to Ikea. And going to Ikea is never a good idea, but we went to Ikea on Easter Saturday to, to try and fit out um, our new apartment. And I'm usually a relaxed guy, but I like started feeling dizzy. I was like overwhelmed by the Easter Saturday shopping experience. It was packed. I was trying to deal with it in all sorts of ways. I was just sort of yelling out like, Happy Easter, Jesus loves you, like trying to just like escape the moment or I don't know, but Easter Saturday is, is a crazy shopping day. And we don't usually do Easter Saturday services in church, right? We've got Good Friday, we've got Resurrection Sunday. Some churches do the Passover meal the, the night before, celebrating you know, the night that we're in now in the text. But Easter Saturday is the place we often live. Easter Saturday is the day between grief and joy between despair and celebration. We often live in an Easter Saturday space, like it feels somewhere between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, between death and resurrection. It's a, it's a liminal space where things aren't quite right, but we can maybe, not sure, I don't know, see the light. You know, sometimes we just feel alive. Sometimes we feel like we're ready to go. Sometimes we feel like it's Easter Sunday, but often we just want to go to bed. It just feels like that dark Good Friday when the clouds were out and the sun was not. And so as Jesus teaches the disciples for, for life after him, how to be followers in an Easter Saturday world, he's, he knows that he will have had the victory that he will have overcome the world, that he will have risen from the grave, defeated sin and death, died for our sins. And yet he knows that we'll be living in a kingdom that is both now and not yet, that is both arrived but still to come. The, the kingdom will be consummated. Jesus will come again. It's like in that This I Believe song, there's the verse about, I believe in the resurrection that Jesus rose again and there's the, I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again. So we live in this in-between time. You know, to use St. Augustine's um, imagery, the city of God and the city of man or, or God's kingdom and the world, we live in this in-between where we're dual citizens. Our hope and our home is in the city of God but we are citizens and contributors to this fallen world as well. And so I think when, when we're living in this world between you know, Good Friday and Easter Saturday, we're often living between eternal optimism and perpetual pessimism. And often if you've got a foot in two camps for too long, you're terror groin. And so we like to jump into one camp to feel comfortable. Yeah, it's hard to balance the tension. Will I be an optimist all the time or will I be you know, 
gloomy and bleak. For the perpetual pessimist, it's always Good Friday, right? It's very Melbourne. Always wearing black, grey skies, listening to those sad playlists. Who's on your sad playlist? I don't know, Laney. Or, how do you spell that? Love. You know that artist Love? Is that Love? Sad playlist. Celine Dion, maybe. There's not much meaning. There's not much hope. Often there's cynicism in the space of perpetual pe- pessimism. You know, cynicism is different to scepticism. Scepticism says, I have doubts, which is okay, but I'm interested, I'm intrigued. But cynicism just says, no way, Jose. It's bleak. It's lacking, lacking hope. Perpetual pessimism um, tries to affirm reality. It says, I see things the real way and they are bleak. But there's not much hope. At the other end, though, eternal optimism, you've got lots of hope but not much reality, right? And eternal optimism can lead to restlessness and burnout. You're always trying to like, live in the clouds, always trying to flap your wings and fly, and that's just exhausting. Imagine trying to fly. God made us to live on the ground. You know, I, I have a tendency to be in the eternal optimist camp, you know, wearing summer clothes in the middle of winter and turning on the heater as like a, a false reality. And I've, I've actually struggled with, with eternal optimism for a lot of my adult life. Um, I think there's four reasons. We live in a culture um, that promotes secular humanism. Secular humanism is, is secular and humanism is like almost the religion of humans, that humans are just the best. We have this inflated view of humanity, that we're so good, that, that anything is impossible. Anything is possible. Impossible is nothing, Adidas would say. We can do anything. So, you know, secular humanism is sort of um, the flavour of the month in, um, in sort of middle-class, middle educated culture. I also had a, a really positive family upbringing. Maybe that's a white thing. Um, but, but just all affirmation, no, no criticism, just lots of positivity. So I've got a, a culture that's positive, a, a family upbringing that's positive, a personality that's quite upbeat, and the church culture I grew up in was, um, was hyper-optimistic as well. And so I, I found that I end up living in a world in my head that's always Easter Sunday and never Good Friday. That I, can, I, can so, I could so easily recognize the image of God, but forget original sin, the fall. I could so easily thank God for the life that he has given and that he's overcome the world, but forget about the death he had to die and the, the cruciform life he calls us to, the way of the cross. But, but God's been doing something in me over the last year maybe and and I'm learning to live in this tension between, between image of God and the fall, between the cross and the empty grave, between optimism and pessimism. So if we look at the text, Jesus 
1633, Jesus gives us two promises. He promises that in this world you will have trouble. And he promises that he's overcome the world. Now, last week he promised that the world will hate us. This week he's promising we'll have trouble. It's, it's a little bit gloomy. But he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, on the cross, at the empty grave, he has overcome the world. Christ is victorious. So he says, take heart. So what I want to invite you to is a posture called hopeful realism. A life grounded in reality, in the mess and the mud of the human condition, yet at the same time full of hope. You know, if you look at this passage, like a lot of the passages in John, we see joy, we see love, and we see peace. And if you live with love, joy, and peace in the midst of the mud and mess of life, you get hopeful realism. It's, it's reckoning with reality, but it's at home in the victory of Jesus. Jesus invites us into healing and into hope. He promises trouble. And I think that's comforting because if you're feeling troubled, you're like literally walking in the promises of Jesus. So that's like I'm having a bad day. Just walking in the promises of Jesus. Trouble. Jesus promised it. Amen, Jesus. Bring on the trouble. I'm just walking in your promises and life's hard. (laughs) Yet he also promises that he's overcome the world that he's had the victory, that he's defeated evil, sin and death. So take heart. How this passage begins, if you you go to the top of our passage, um, verse 16, there's this confusion basically about the Easter Saturday tension. That Jesus says, in a little while you'll see me no more, but then after a little while you'll see me. And the disciples are confused by this, but they only tell each other. You know like when you're um, in class and you're confused, but you don't tell the teacher you don't get it? You just tell, you look at your mates and the teacher's like, do you get it? And you're like, yeah. And then you look at your mates and you're like, no. That's what's going on here, right? They don't say it to Jesus, but Jesus is such a good teacher that he says, hey, I, I see you want to ask more. I see you need clarification. And so he explains it further. He says, I'm going away. I'm going to the cross. He says, you will weep and mourn. This is verse 19. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. He says, it's like a woman giving birth to a child. It's full on. Has anyone here given birth to a child? Zero. We're a young church. Welcome any um, families, though. If you, if you know of any young families that want to come, they're, they're welcome. But we, no one's given birth yet at the Embrace congregation. What I, hear, what I hear is that childbirth is extremely painful. Anyone else heard similar? Heard, heard that? Common take. Fair enough. And yet I wonder if we don't actually hear just how painful it is. Because a lot of mums the worst of the pain they quickly forget because they meet their child and they sort of like forget the pain. You know, they call it today, they call it the halo effect. I know that's because everyone listens to Halo by Beyonce or um, 
what it is, but they call it the halo effect. That you, you sort of forget the worst of the pain. And yet Jesus was talking this, about this thousands of years ago. Verse 21, when her baby is born, he says, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Jesus is so selfless. Notice how he doesn't say the joy that her child is born. He's like got such a sort of like all people mentality that he's like, her joy that 